Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. My oldest friend, last Tuesday, was the 12th anniversary of her death. Was she hitting on my grandpa? At a breakfast buffet? This program features the work of 2022 writer Catherine Strange. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Michael Schmelzer, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. Let's hear a little bit about your Jack Straw project. I suppose I'm describing it at the moment as a snarky memoir about complex PTSD. Specifically, I'm writing about a period when I was 22 years old. I graduated college into the Great Recession, and I decided that I would, instead of moving home to live with my parents, I would quit taking my antidepressants, marry my college boyfriend, and move to the UK. So uh, I guess the, uh, the, uh, the story is about why that decision seemed like a good thing at the time. And I think um, with trauma, both you have to physically like escape a situation and then you have to like psychologically or like spiritually extract yourself from a situation. So uh, that sounds really heavy, but <laughs> hopefully it's like a, a pretty funny book so far too. <laughs> It does sound heavy, but knowing what I know about your writing and you, you definitely have a sense of humor that carries you through. I was wondering if you could uh, talk to me more about that sense of humor and how you utilize that in your writing. Yeah, I think humor has always been a big tool in my toolbox. I've always been kind of a comedy nerd. Like even as a little kid, I remember like watching like Comedy Central and, you know, like stand-up specials that were very inappropriate for me <laughs> and just really uh, enjoying that, enjoying figuring out how you make people laugh. Um, so yeah, I, I try to use that pretty frequently in my writing. I think it just makes a piece feel, it makes it feel lighter and also helps it connect more. I often tend to be self-deprecating, but also I use a lot of snark about just things I notice about how things work in society or yeah, just a lot of little bratty observations that are rolling around in my head most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think about your ideal reader at all? I think I write mostly for myself. When I started writing, I was thinking about kind of, uh, it felt very difficult for me to find books that were serious and had a lot of ideas, but I thought were also really funny or had like a lot of more lighthearted moments. And I think I'm seeing more of these now. I don't know if I've just gotten better at finding them, but I guess that's the person I'm writing for is somebody who likes to have fun, but also likes to kind of think about bigger things. So speaking of books and some of these authors that you're recently discovering, I know for me, for instance, like Bridge to Terabithia was the first book that really ruined me as a kid, but also <laughs> made me like love writing and love what it can do. What are some of these books and authors for you that make you want to do what you're doing? Mm. When I was a kid, it was definitely, I remember being in middle school and finding Jane Austen for the first time and just find that she was so snarky and funny um, and really loving her. And then in high school, I discovered David Sedaris, actually like a collection of his Christmas 
short stories like in a bin at a Walmart at like 11 p.m. one night and just being like, what is this? Like how I did not know you could write about, you know, being a, a gay elf at a Christmas Macy's display, um, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, so those were like two really early ones. And now like more and more, I, I think I'm finding literature by, uh, I don't know, fellow millennial women, uh, just really like pushing kind of the bounds of what I have thought like, oh, this can be literature. Like uh, I'm reading a a memoir by Patricia Lockwood right now, Priest Daddy. And she's just like, she's so funny. And she takes like that, like internet speak, I feel like I was raised on. And she, yeah, she makes it so literary. And I'm like, that's amazing. What is something that you want taken away from your writing? If you give a performance or you do a reading, what is something that you want the audience to walk away with? I want the audience to leave with feelings of empathy, I guess more empathy than they came in with. I, in my writing, I like to make fun a lot, but I try to always leave room to see like the humanity, even in people who are kind of more antagonistic, I suppose. So I always think everybody is redeemable. And so I hope that when people read or hear me, that they, they get that sense that, oh, this person is like, you know, being a real asshole right now, but even they are redeemable. (laughs) (laughs) I believe in your artist statement, you had said recording your experiences was necessary for distinguishing between reality and your family's denialism. Yeah. And I thought that was a brilliant, succinct way to say it. How do you keep yourself open and honest in your writing? Sometimes delving into these things are really painful. So Mm -hmm. how do you balance out mental health and self-care with being honest and authentic in your writing? Mm, yeah, I have been to a lot of therapy and I continue to go to a lot of therapy. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, uh, this is a story I've been wanting to tell for a very long time, but I don't I don't think I was, and I tried a couple of times I sat down to try and write this story and I couldn't, I couldn't really achieve that truthfulness because I think I hadn't processed enough and now I'm feeling like I am able to do that. But yeah, I have at the moment like two therapists mm-hmm. and one of them is really sweet and kind, like an encouraging mommy. Mm-hmm. And the, <laughs> the other one just tells me to like stop bullshitting and get real like a like a stern daddy. And they, I feel like they balance each other out and between the three of us, we kind of figure out what reality is. <laughs> <laughs> Take a little bit from column A, a little bit from column yeah. B. <laughs> Try not to play them off each other too much. <laughs> like, well, my other therapist <laughs> said, mm. <laughs> oh, That is an amazing dynamic. <laughs> yeah. So I know that the therapy obviously is a, a very helpful thing and it helps you process mm-hmm. things. I know humor has been a way for you to process, obviously. Um, what other kind of things do you do to keep your tank filled? Um, writing is an arduous, long journey. So how do you maintain that? motivation to just keep doing it. Yeah, I do view it kind of like a, you have to, to fill your own, fill your well before you can fill your cup or whatever they say. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I really try to exercise. I started running during the pandemic, which I never thought I would mm-hmm. do. Like I'm not an athletic person at all. That's been good. And I also try to make sure I'm reading or viewing art regularly so that I can feel inspired. And then um, yeah, just finding community. Um, Jack Straw has been, it's been really exciting to get to be part of this community. And then I have, I have another writers group that I've been part of for like six years now. Um, and they are great. And, you know, we spend like the first half of our writers group just like shooting the shit. And then the second half, like critiquing and 
yeah, I think those things, those things really keep me going. And then I find like I'm a happier person if I'm writing. If I don't write for a while, I get really crabby and unfun to be about. Mm-hmm. So got to write something. What advice would you give a young writer just starting out? I would say, you know, read as much as you can. Argue with your English teachers. And I think the hardest thing for me, at least, is just believing that you have a story to tell. Mm. I see that, like, there's so many, you know, amazing kids in my neighborhood all the time. I think, like, oh, each of them has, like, a really cool story, I bet. At least one, probably dozens. So just believing that people do want to hear your story. So it's worth it's worth telling. Now we'll hear a selection from Catherine's live reading. The morning of my wedding, I was awoken by a nightmare. Nightmares were not an unusual occurrence. My top three by frequency, not preference, were drowning, car out of control, and screaming, but no sound coming out. Perhaps then I shouldn't have been surprised, but it was a disconcerting way to start what was purportedly the happiest day of my life. Creeping past slumbering bridesmaids, I locked myself in the hotel bathroom and stared down my reflection. A strange feeling came over me, that the person looking back bore no relation to myself at all. She was a porcelain doll, The kind I'd collected as a child, prying their waists from wood and wire stands, I adjusted their velvety hems and lacy collars, brushed the dust from their long, thick hair, and pretended they were from European cities I'd heard of, Paris or Antwerp. Their stiff arms knew two positions, resting demurely at their sides or grasping for something just out of reach. You are 22 years old, I whispered to the mirror. How are you going to promise to do anything for the rest of your life? My father, a retired major who had specialized in troop deployment during the Gulf War, had composed the plan of attack for the wedding of his only daughter. My friends and I were to be ferried to various salons, given our meals ready to eat, before assuming battle stations in the church. My nails would be painted, my makeup expertly applied, my hair stuck through with pins. I wasn't even responsible for dressing myself. All I had to do was stay perfectly still. I wasn't sure how much this wedding was costing. Every time the topic came up, the answer seemed to be too much. Another debt I owed my parents. The reception was to be held at the Rainier Club, a storied old building in the heart of downtown where membership can be had for a measly $4,200 a year. In 2007, there were a dozen different reality shows about weddings. That summer, I had worked part-time as a nanny and part-time helping my dad replace the wooden fence around our back pasture. The horses we boarded chewed through the top rail and had escaped on several occasions. In the evening, I would shower off the day's sweat and splinters and sit on the basement carpet to watch the camera pornographically slow pan over head tables while a voiceover hoarse with lust whispered about beads, hands sewn into the very centers of hydrangeas. If I watched long enough, the horny reverence of platinum weddings and million dollar wedding would give way to the snark of Bridezilla, a family favorite. We'd sit with our plates of salad and steak, united, for once, by a feeling of superiority. 
Weddings were meant to be full of little touches that showed the bride's personality and highlighted the particular love story of this particular couple, but more than that, they were to communicate class. Each Baroque detail should insinuate secret wealth, but above all, taste. And so my family pretended that we normally cared about things like napkin folds and top shelf liquor. My mother, recently let go from her job as a children's minister, had tactically deployed invitations to the most influential people in our congregation. The wedding had grown too big to fail. <laughs> I showered and since my friends were still not awake, went down to the lobby for continental breakfast. It was early enough that only the elderly were milling the buffet. With great relief, I spotted my grandpa collecting a hearty plate of sideboard scramble and sausage. It felt like an answered prayer. My grandparents had been married for decades. Surely he would buoy me with his folksy wisdom. Pappy and I weren't close, something I always felt vaguely guilty about. Like the rest of my extended family, he lived in the South. We'd only seen each other three times since my family had to camp to Western Montana when I was eight. He was a cheery man, and on the rare occasions we talked on the phone, he'd always sign off with, I love you mighty good, girl. I approached him slowly from behind, placing a hand on his shoulder blade to alert him to my presence, the way one might a horse. Poppy was mostly deaf, refusing my parents' offer to buy him hearing aids. Not only that, but he could not turn his head after a car accident in his teens and a subsequent backwoods surgery had left his neck bones permanently fused. He pivoted from the waist to look at me, a smile dawning across his stoic features. We sat down together with our breakfast trays. I didn't sleep very well last night. I'm feeling kind of nervous, I confided. Eh? He asked loudly. <laughs> I said that I didn't. I said I'm nervous. I have cold feet. I shouted at him. Poppy grunted, liberally dousing his buffet eggs with hot sauce. There were so many gaps in my family knowledge. My grandma, Mima, only had five stories that she told on rotation. Her favorite was about the time she threw a knife at her brother. But a close second was how God had given her a vision of the man she would marry. In the vision, he was sitting at a big desk. And when she walked into the room, he tilted his hat up with one finger and said, hello, beautiful. And it had supposedly happened just like that. At 70, Poppy was still a handsome man, tall, with the lightest sprinkle of salt in his dark hair. He popped a forkful of eggs into his mouth, nodded as if considering something. His eyes sparkled with ancient wisdom as he looked at me over the rim of his glasses. This is it, I thought. He did hear me, and now he's ready to talk. I watched him chew, eager for the thoughts gathering behind that time-worn brow. From the corner of my eye, a puff of tinted blonde hair wheeled closer. Her seated position, combined with the deep lines at the corners of her mouth, brought to mind a ventriloquist dummy. The woman paused at my grandfather's side and said, My husband's been dead for eight and a half years. <laughs> Poppy pivoted from the waist. Eh? He asked her. My husband's dead, she replied. My sister's dead. My parents are dead. My oldest friend? Last Tuesday was the 12th anniversary of her death. Was she hitting on my grandpa? At a breakfast buffet? No. If Bridezilla had taught me anything, it's that this was my day. And my day was going to start with my first ever heart-to-heart -heart with my grandfather, wherein he would bestow upon me all of his rich life experiences. 
Summoning every ounce of assertiveness I could muster, I said, excuse me, my grandpa and I, the woman's eyes darted at me, but she didn't falter. Her target was clear as she began in on a long story about a relative's cancerous growth. What was even happening? Poppy wasn't helping. Unable to hear and concerned that the stranger might have something relevant to say, he kept asking her to repeat herself. I thought of snappy comebacks or loudly mentioning Mima, who was still very much alive, or just silently rising and shoving this woman's wheelchair back towards the buffet. Instead, I scowled at my cantaloupe, waiting for her to leave. All too soon, my maid of honor appeared, ushering me toward the door. We had a schedule after all. With the old lady still rambling, I told Poppy I had to go. He took my hand in his. Years of manual labor as a carpenter and a subsistence farmer had left his hands thickly calloused, the knuckles swollen with arthritis. He looked at me then like I was the culmination of a dream. I love you mighty good, girl, he said. I had wanted to get married. In fact, I had lobbied for it. When Ryan talked about pursuing a master's degree through the European Union, I told him I wouldn't go unless we were married. I'd reasoned that if I was giving up post-graduation job opportunities, back when I believed those were a thing, it was only fair that I have some sort of assurance he wasn't going to dump me in six months. From New Year's Eve until Valentine's Day, I'd been on tenterhooks every time he took me out waiting for the ring to appear. When he finally knelt before me on Alki Beach, I lunged for that ring like Gollum. In a matter of weeks, we planned to move to Loughborough, a town in central England we did not even know how to pronounce. We didn't have jobs or a place to live. We would be 5,000 miles away from anyone we knew. Sometimes the plan felt like a collective delusion, the only concrete evidence being Ryan's acceptance letter from Loughborough University. The accompanying information included an orange flighter entitled, 10 Reasons Not to Bring Your Wife to Uric Masters. One, she will be homesick. Two, she will distract you from your studies. At the church, my attendants fastened satin-covered buttons at my back and crowned me with a veil. When my parents left the room to speak with the photographer, my maid of honor turned and said, you know, there's still time to get out of this. We could leave right now. I let out a breathy laugh, imagining us bursting through the church doors, gathering my train and hopping a bus, a la the graduate. Now, I shook my head. In the back of the church, I waited arm in arm with my father. His face was pulled into a look of stern encouragement, as if he would have loved to give me some sort of cliche-laden halftime pep talk. But the music started, the doors shuttered open, and there, at the end of a long aisle, was Ryan. And I loved him. And that was all that mattered. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiadelica. Our theme music is by Ron Park, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2022 curator of this program is Michael Schmelzer, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz.
The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture King County Lodging Tax, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Maddie Lotz and Cassie Nicholson for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.